Good morning. Welcome to Northridge Church. My name is Daniel White. I get the amazing opportunity to lead our kids' ministry at all of our campuses. So if you regularly serve the next generation, uh, I just want to say thank you. Uh, Only the future will be able to tell the fruit of your labor as you point the next generation of Jesus and partner uh, with parents. And this is week six of seven of a series we've been in called The Mind Game. In the past two weeks, we have zeroed in on this topic of the conscience. Uh, Two weeks ago, Aaron walked us through the idea of what the conscience is and gave us this great uh, working definition of how it functions in our lives. And we defined it as this, uh, your awareness of what is right and wrong. And then last week, Aaron walked us through the different types of guilt and how we can calibrate our conscience around God's word and God's truth uh, to walk more closely with him. And this week, what I want to do is take those past two weeks of information and then plunge us into the first century and in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul talks to first century followers of Jesus on the primary issue of their conscience. And this uh, issue you can find in several places in Scripture, but we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So if you want to turn there, scroll there, whatever the case would be, I would love for you to join me there, where Paul is writing to a church, uh, and um, probably several churches in the city of Corinth. And Paul, writing this letter where he addresses the primary issue in the first century on the matter of conscience, says this, 1 Corinthians 8.1, now about food sacrificed to idols. Man, don't you deal with this on a normal basis? No, right? I, I, I don't deal with it either. And so it's, it's super important. Like I said, we're plunging ourselves into the first century, into their context, so we need to understand what in the world's happening with this food? Why is it being sacrificed to what idols? And why was this the issue of primary conscience that Paul chooses to write about to first century followers of Jesus? Well, the food that's being referenced here um, is sim- an act of worship that's being sacrificed, an animal that's being sacrificed uh, to another God. Think like Old Testament, but it's not the one true God of the Bible, Yahweh, but it's rather other little g false gods uh, that the people in their city worship. There are probably several temples and different things like that. And so Paul is addressing Christians who most likely used to practice these acts of worship. And in their culture, uh, both the killing of the animal and sacrificing it on the altar and eating the meat was seen as acts of worship uh, to that God that it was sacrificed to. So the question is, okay, since that's what's seen as act of worship, where would a Christian encounter these things? And there really are three places that a Christian could encounter this meat. Well, the first one is we're going to start with the wealthy uh, Christian. So this is how the process would probably take place. An animal gets brought to a temple and given to a priest. The priest performs the priestly duties of the proper way to sacrifice this animal, eventually kills it, puts a little bit of the meat on the uh, the idol to, to worship it, sacrifice it to the idol, probably takes a smaller portion of meat for themselves to eat. And then if it's festival time, the rest of that meat, the rest of that animal will be sent to the festival to be enjoyed. And if it is festival time, the chances are there were a lots of animals that this was taking place at. 
And wealthier Christians, just wealthier people in general, would be invited to these festivals. So the tension is, with these Christians that are well off in life, the the tension is, do I go to the festival? Do I not go to the festival? Can I go to the festival and just not eat? Or can I go to the festival and eat? Because I have some knowledge about this given thing. So it was a tension. Now let's move to kind of the, the middle class person. Well, after the festival was over, uh, the remaining portions of the meat would be sent to the city market to be sold at a very discounted price. And meat was not a common uh, in the first century diet of any person. It was seen more as a delicacy. And so imagine you're walking through the marketplace getting some groceries for your family and you see a piece of steak hanging there that's like really, really cheap that you could afford. And the tension is, do I buy this for my family to enjoy? Is it okay? And in the back of your mind, you're thinking, there's a great chance this was sacrificed at the temple as an act of worship to another God that I don't follow. So do I take this piece of meat? Do I purchase it? Do I not purchase it? What do I do? And then the third option is maybe you're on a strict budget. You're a lower class citizen. You don't make that much money. You couldn't afford even the cheap meat at the Um, at the marketplace, but maybe you get invited to a neighbor's house for dinner. And you go to the neighbor's house for dinner, and all of a sudden on the center of the table, they got some meat. Do you ask them, where'd you buy that? Was this sacrificed at the temple? Now, think in your own, like, life, if you got invited over to somebody's house and you just start drilling them about where they got this food at, this would not be okay, right? And so it's the same in the first century. It's not okay. Like, so the tension for them is, do I eat this? Do I not eat this? So the question wasn't if this was going to be an issue, but when? For every class of citizen, for a follower of Jesus, the question was, when were they going to encounter this matter of consciousness? And the deal is, there were Christians followers of Jesus that loved him and wanted to honor him and everything they did that sat on both sides of the issue. They were followers of Jesus, we'll call them Christian A, that sat over here and said, I used to go to the temple and worship that other false god, so therefore I cannot go to the festival. I can't eat the meat because that is seen as an act of worship and I don't do that anymore. That's my old life. That's my old self and I need to put on the new self. And then you had Christian over here, Christian B, we'll call them, that said, I know the one true God. And that hunk of stone, that hunk of wood is not God. It's not a God and it's not the God I worship. And me eating this meat, not a big deal. Let's have steak tonight. And, they, and both of these people, on both these sides of the issue, Christian A and Christian B, have the opportunity to honor God in their conscience. And so what Paul is trying to get across here is, How do these two people who sit on polar opposite sides of what I'm going to call a secondary issue, how do they pursue love and unity and how do they live life together? And this is what Paul is addressing because both of these people are convicted about this issue just like the issues you're convicted about because they have knowledge. They're informed. They have an opinion about certain things. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 8 verses 1 and 2. Oh, or my bad, my bad. I'm getting too far ahead of myself right now. And so these two people of what they're doing is this, is these Christian A and Christian B, he defines these two different people as one of them is weak and one of them is strong. And the weak conscience, we need to define this for our own selves as well. A weak conscience is someone who tries to honor God through self-imposed 
limits. So the weak conscience, what we need to understand, the person who says, I shouldn't do this and neither should anyone else, that person is weak because he is theologically, he or she is theologically uninformed, but not heretical. Paul labels this person weak because they have room to grow in their life. They have room to grow. And I want to make a distinction here between what Paul defines as the weak conscience and what we talked about last week. Aaron taught us about the seared or the corrupted conscience. They're two very different things. Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 2-4 about people who are intentionally leading others away from the truth, where he says this, Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciousness have been seared as with a hot iron. A weak conscience is not the same as a seared conscience, where a seared conscience becomes inactive, silent, rarely accuses you, and it's insensitive to sin. The weak conscience is hypersensitive. It's overactive. It it ironically blames you and makes you guilty for things that are not sin, and a normal follower of Jesus who's a mature Christian who knows God's truth would not have any guilt about a given issue. And so the meat that is sacrificed to the idol, the weak Christian is saying, I shouldn't and neither should anyone else do this thing. I'm putting off my old self, putting on my new self. And I can't do that with a good conscience. Where a strong conscience is this. A strong conscience is someone who tries to honor God through fully realized freedoms. A strong conscience is someone who tries to honor God through fully realized freedoms. If it can be done, they have the opinion that it should be done. Those are people who are correctly theologically informed. These are followers of Jesus who knows God's word and knows what is right and wrong. So in the issue of this meat sacrifice to idols, this is the Christian who's saying, this doesn't matter. That's not a God. Let's have steak. And so for us, we know that these people are convicted because they're informed. And now we are the same in this boat. We have this knowledge about us that makes us deeply convicted. And that's exactly what Paul is telling these first century followers of Jesus. He says this, Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. Let's read verse 2 again. It got a little wordy. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. The ESV renders this verse, if anyone imagines he has knowledge. And the decision for us sits in this last phrase of verse 1. Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Let's talk about love building up, the positive spin on this verse, where Paul is talking about love building up. This verb builds up literally means to push something or to repetitively do something to achieve its end purpose. I want you to think of it like this. You buy a piece of land that's a blank slate, and then you hire a contractor to build you a house. Remember, it's a blank piece of land with nothing on it. After day one of construction, you don't walk up to the contractor and be like, yo, where's my house? Because you know he's not done yet. It's going to take him many, many more days. Maybe on a day 140 of construction, it starts looking more and more like a house if he's not already done, if you hired a good contractor. And days, as the days go by, that house continues to look more and more like a house because the contractor is building it up, pursuing it to achieve its purpose or end goal. Where Paul, in this letter at 1 Corinthians, is writing to a group of churches, Christians, who are supposed to be the body of Christ. 
individual members who represent one unified body. And the action of building for them is love. So as they are loving each other, they are looking more and more like the body of Christ. And behind me, you have a visual illustration of what this might look like. You, you see, you have three individual people who are holding hands. You are clearly can see where one starts and another stops. And if you got in conversations with these people, you would know they all have their own individual personalities, the convictions, things that they cl- hold really close to their own heart, that they're passionate about. And each one of them, as they are in the circle, are pursuing love and unity. They are unified together. But what happens when the opposite thing starts happening? When Paul says puffs up. Literally, that verb means to inflate with air or pursue pride. So as you can see right now, what love building up looks like, unified together, holding hands in this life, let's look at what puffing them up might look like. And I want to puff them up now. Our first contestant that will be puffed up, she is puffed up with theological knowledge. So uh, Miss Julie here, she's puffed up with theological knowledge. She has centuries of Christian history debate, locked and loaded, ready to go at any time. All right, she knows the difference in Arminianism, Calvinism. She's got some end time charts in her backpack. She's ready to go. She's pretty confident. She knows when Jesus is coming back. And if you disagree with her, she starts questioning, how do you read the Bible? Are you actually a Christian? Do you love God? She gets puffed up and ready to go. Our next contestant here that's going to be puffed up is Ian. Ian is puffed up with political knowledge. This brother, he drinks political commentary for breakfast. He knows the issues. He knows what God is passionate about, how you should or shouldn't vote. And he, he knows the issues that are close to his heart because he knows they're close to God's heart too. And if you get in a conversation with him and start disagreeing, he questions, do you care about the issues? Do you know God and what he would care about? And are you actually even a Christian? And then our last contestant, since nobody's unified with you anymore, Graham, we might as well puff you up. And so Graham is puffed up with Christian liberty knowledge. And in essence, this guy, he thinks he's the strong in conscience. If it can be done, he has the opinion that it should be done. He's having beers and Bible study, cigar nights with his community group. He, he thinks that, man, marijuana, it's a natural plant. God made it. We should smoke it. And so he has all these opinions about what should and shouldn't be done. And if it can be done, then it should be done. And all three of these individuals, they have the opportunity to be right before God in their own conscience. But it doesn't take long in their perfectly calibrated bubble of what they're convicted about and they have all this knowledge about until they get out in the world and they bump into somebody that disagrees with them. And then what happens next is as they're bumping into somebody who disagrees with them is they start wielding their conscience or their knowledge as a weapon instead of just something that's close to their own heart. And then what happens on social media and in actual life is we start saying things like this. This guy must be silenced. He disagrees with me and I have to get him to think like I think because he's wrong. He's an enemy to the church. He doesn't actually follow God. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Like all these different things happen and it's funny like this, but it actually happens in real life and it's not that funny. And so the question and the tension that we have to live in right now in the first century church is living in, where Paul says, basically, is it possible for you to be deeply concerned about issues and hold them close to your chest and still pursue love and unity? And the answer is yes. 
but I want to show you what it might look like. All right, guys. Thanks, thanks for bumping in. This is the last fun part, if you want to grab that. And so here's what it looks like. If we're not supposed to be puffed up, if we're supposed to be more deflated in our conscience and the things that we care about, it, it doesn't look as fun. Because there's a tension in which we have to live in of those things being close to us, but still making the choice to pursue the arm of unity and love first. And this is what it kind of looks like. You see, each one of these guys and, and girl have things that are very close to their heart, that they're very passionate about. Graham, he's got issues that are close to him, but he's extending the arm of unity instead. And Julie, same thing. She's got things that she's wearing very close to her heart that she's passionate about, but she's choosing to pursue love and unity instead of being inflated with this knowledge. And Ian is the exact same thing. They look funny, but the point is this, that there, it's possible for us to hold things that are close to our heart and not be puffed up and extend the arm of love and unity. And I want to show you how. So let's give these guys a hand. Thank you guys so much. You're awesome. You're incredible. You preached it for me right there. And Paul says, this is possible, but we have to know how. Paul says the first thing we must do is check your attitude. As we wrestle through this tension of checking our own attitude or our own hearts on these strong and weak areas of conscience, we have to first know what knowledge matters most. And in verse 3, he says this, But whoever loves God is known by God. Paul says that, yeah, knowledge matters, but there's one person's knowledge that matters way more than yours, and it's God's knowledge about you. God knew you were a sinner. He knew my wicked heart, and still his love paid the price for my sin. He loved you and loved me, and so these matters of knowledge are secondary when it comes to this, because God's knowledge matters most, and he gets the people there because he wants to take them somewhere else. Look at verse 4 with me. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and from whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still accustomed to their idols. So when they eat sacrificial foods, they think of it as been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, but, oh, my bad, I skipped down. They think of it as been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. And we are no worse if we do not eat it and no better if we do. So Paul says, for Christians, we must consider our brother and sister's knowledge. Paul brings us this truth that our contents are great when it's all about us. And when we're in this vacuum with our perfectly dialed in conscience, whether we're strong or weak on any given issue, if we think we should or shouldn't and others should or shouldn't, it's great. But the second we get out in the world and bump into another Christian that disagrees with us, we realize it's complicated. And it's not as easy as we think. Because he says, verse 7, not everyone possesses this knowledge. And this knowledge Paul is referencing is about food sacrificed to idols, and there's only one God. 
these little g false gods on the earth. But he says this, where the people in that city and in that culture thought food as an act of worship, Paul says this, verse 8, food does not bring us near to God. He said that's why he's able to say, so it doesn't matter if you eat it or if you don't eat it. And for the mature believer, the focus was supposed to be not on what they know, but what on their other brother or sister knew. In making the decision of action, it was supposed to be, but what does my brother or sister know? Because it's no worse if I do or do not eat. So therefore, after we consider our brother or sister's knowledge, we also must consider their conscience. The next one is consider your brother or sister's conscience. Because Paul says this, verse 9, Be careful, however, that the exercising of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all of your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. The point here Paul is making is that you need to be careful to not do something with a strong conscience in the sight of someone with a weak conscience. Because remember, both these people have the opportunity to honor God in their conscience. And when a follower of Jesus with a strong conscience on any given issue for the first century eating meat sacrificed to an idol practices their knowledge in action, when someone with weak sees this, they don't know it's meaningless. The, the strong conscience person says, I know that that thing is meaningless, therefore I can do it. But when the weak brother sees the strong brother doing it, he doesn't know it's meaningless, and he's emboldened to take action, and when he takes action, he is destroyed. Well, let's talk about what this word destroyed means. The destroyed doesn't mean someone losing their salvation. In this context, it simply means to make one spiritually damaged, like taking their weak conscience and pushing it in the wrong direction, making it worse. But the verb destroyed is also a passive verb, meaning that the action is being, they are being acted upon, meaning the weaker brother is being acted upon by the stronger brother's knowledge and his action. And Paul is trying to be very crystal clear that even though you personally may have a strong conscience and freedom in Christ, your freedom doesn't mean you have the right to be reckless. Paul is trying to make it very clear that in this principle of how we act, we act with others in mind and not ourselves. And this feels restricting. I'm just going to acknowledge that. It feels like, man, I can't do anything even though I have this knowledge and I'm convicted that it's okay for me to do this. I can't still do it. Well, Paul wants us to think of it like this. We should desire as believers, followers of Jesus, to bless others and ultimately win the loss to Christ. So that's why the last thing that Paul says is we must consider Jesus. Verse 12, when you sin against them in this way, you wound their weak conscience and you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what, this is Paul speaking here, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. We must know this, church, that when we live reckless in our strength, we are living in sin. To put it another way, this is a quote adapted by Mark Dever. Um, Conscience cannot make an objectively wrong thing right, but it can make a right thing wrong for you. 
we must understand that no follower of Jesus is unimportant. Paul tells us as believers to seek to honor one another and build one another up at all cost. Not seeking our rights first, but seeking unity and love first in matters of conscience. And I pray that our church would not be divided over secondary issues, but rather seek unity and love first, knowing these truths, that we are known by God. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 8, 3, whoever loves God is known by God. He knows our wickedness, he knows our sin, and he still chose to come and get us. And second, this truth, that Christ died for all. Verse 11, Paul says, this weak brother or sister, Christ died for them. So our goal, yay, our responsibility as believers is this. For the weak in conscience, release others from your rules. This is the picture of the three up on stage. Julie, who is super convinced theologically that she knows all the answers. She may, in her heart, in her mind, say, this is not right for me to do, nor is it right for anyone else to do. So for Julie and for us, if that's you, if you think theologically that you as a follower of Jesus can't do certain things and therefore no one else can either, your goal, release others from your rules. Because maybe that's your restrictions from your content as the best way to follow God. But it doesn't mean that's everybody's. And for the strong in conscience, your goal is to release your freedom for others. In both these matters, the weak and the strong, the choice is not between pleasing people and God. Rather, it's between do I please God and others or myself? Because, remember, it's possible for both these people, the weak in certain areas and the strong in certain areas. And by the way, none of us have the corner of the market on being fully weak or fully strong. There's always going to be somebody that's a little bit stronger than you, that thinks the line's a little further or weaker than you on any given issue. No matter where you're at on this sliding scale, on every issue, you may vary between weak and strong on these different things. And so the question is, if we're possible to honor God in our conscience, whether we are weak or strong, what do we do? We consider Jesus and we follow him because he was the first to practice this. Because what Jesus was doing was pursuing people, loving them who sat on both sides. And both these people sinned against him. And remember in week three when Drew laid out for us plainly that Jesus gave up his rights for our sake. He was the first to practice being a servant to others and not himself. And then Paul jumps off of him and says this in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Jesus gave up his rights to serve others. Paul gave up his right to serve others. Now it's our turn. The question is, what would our church and other churches look like if we sought to obey Christ and become a servant to people who didn't look like us, think like us, and ultimately made us uncomfortable? People that make our own sinful hearts want to judge them because they're not strict enough or they're too strict. What would it look like if we chose love and unity over our knowledge? Not forsaking our knowledge, but chose it over our knowledge. We would be a body that built one another up in the way of love, in the way of Christ. Will you join us? That's the question. Will you join us as we seek to honor Christ and be his body that he calls us 
to be. And in these matters of conscience, I've provided three questions for you in your handouts, in the program notes, if you have them. If not, I'm going to read through them really fast. As you consider, do I take action in these different areas? Ask yourself first this question. Does it honor God? Can I do this thing and honor God? Second, does it build up my brother or sister in love? And third, which ultimately is a summary of these first two, can I do this thing without causing my fellow follower of Jesus to sin against their own conscience? Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. Thank you so much for Jesus who you sent to this earth to do for us what we could not do on our own. That you died the death we deserved, you lived the life we couldn't live, and you rose again in victory. And God, you call us to unity. To give up our rights, give up things that convict us in our judgment and in our pride, God, that I pray that we would be a church that sought unity above all other things, not laying aside our knowledge or convictions, holding them close, and still pursuing love and unity. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your word. May we put this into action. In Christ's name, amen.